So Garrison Keillor might be considered the Norman Rockwell of the written and spoken word, always saying folksy things that make us feel warm and fuzzy about American life. But sometimes he talks about things that make me sad, and that's why I, I often will go to a different room if Aaron's got Garrison Keillor going on the radio. And one of those situations is when he was talking about being chosen last as a kid and just the impact it continued to have on him. Huge, famous star, and still he thinks about these things and they have an effect. And this is what he said about it. He relives the, the whole experience. The captains are down to their last grudging choices. A slow kid for catcher, someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it. They choose the last ones two at a time. You and you because they make no difference. And the remaining kids, the scrubs, the excess, they deal for us. If I take him, you've got to take him. Sometimes I go as high as sixth, usually lower. But just once, I'd like Daryl to pick me first and say, him, I want him, the skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes. Come on over here. But I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. And if you have ever been not chosen when people were, were choosing, whether it was at work, at school, in sports, in romantic life, whatever the case, you're someone's third or fourth choice, that can have a real devaluing effect on you. And I think that's why it's so important to me that we take time to really look into a text like the one we have today, uh, with, with a verse like Ephesians 1, 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight, that he chose us, and it wasn't way at the end with no enthusiasm, it was way at the beginning. And he chose us for a purpose, and he chose us because he loves us. Now this whole thing is, verses 3 through 14, this whole intro in, in the ESV, the heading is Spiritual Blessings in Christ, it's two paragraphs long in my Bible and many sentences long, but in the original Greek, this whole deal is one sentence. This is the, the longest sentence in the New Testament, 202 words. This is long even for Paul. And, you know, I, I imagine that he was dictating this. It seems like some of his letters, he, he says, okay, sit down, Tychicus, take a letter. You're going to write this down. I'm going to speak it. And as he's just said, I'm Paul, you're the Ephesians, let's get into this. I imagine him just bursting forth with this kind of praise and just without even maybe choosing to, launching into this long run-on sentence of blessing and worship and going on and on without even taking a breath while Luke or Timothy or whoever writes as fast as he can trying to keep up. This is how Paul responds to thinking about what God has done for him. A 202-word sentence which goes deep into the past, the present, and the future, which brings us through the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is perhaps my favorite sentence. And as I was reading it in the Greek this week, it occurred to me just how seamless it is and how it flows, and it really hurts that we're going to break it up into pieces, but we have to, and I'll get over it. We're going to break it into four pieces. First, God chose us. Second, God redeems us. Third, God has given us an inheritance. And fourth, God seals us with his spirit. Today, we're going to look at just the first one. God chose us. But he begins the whole section with what we call a barakah. 
It's a rabbinical thing to do, to start off with a blessing. Like many of the Psalms start out with, blessed is the Lord God, and the blessed be, and that's how he starts out here, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Greek, that's the word eulogetas, and you can hear in there maybe the word eulogy, and that is where we get the word eulogy, it simply means to speak well of, and here we're speaking well of God, we're blessing him. Now today people think, oh, God's dead. Maybe we should say a eulogy. Well, in Paul's mind and in Paul's thought, God is alive and at work. Therefore, let's give him a eulogy. Let's bless him at length. And the notion of us blessing God sometimes strikes me as a kind of funny. I don't know about you. When you say to somebody, you're a real blessing to me, it means that they bring something into your life that wasn't there before, and they, they really make you, you feel good about yourself, perhaps. But, but how is it that we bless God? Well, Spurgeon had the same question. He said, God blesses us with all spiritual blessings, but we cannot give him any blessings. He needs nothing out of our hand, and if he did, we could not give it. He is infinitely blessed already. We cannot add to his blessedness. When he blesses us, he gives us a blessedness we never had before. But when we bless him, we cannot increase his infinite perfection one iota. And that about sums it up. That's our relationship with God. His blessings look, I mean, just rain down on us. You can't even see through them. We don't even catch most of them. We take them for granted. We, oh, that's nice that that happened to me. And we don't return thanks. His blessings are, are infinite. They start at the, the beginning before the foundation of the earth. He chose us, that he changes our hearts so that we would not rebel but would follow him, that he forgives us our sins, that he causes the sun to shine down on us and the rain to fall on us, on the good and the, the wicked alike, that he gives us life, he gives us health, he gives us everything, anything you possess is a gift of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. That's his blessings. And our blessings, at their best, even when it's Paul with his golden pen, are us going, blessed are you, God. And it's okay that that couldn't be more lopsided. In fact, it's good that that couldn't be more lopsided. It reminds us of God's infinite love and that he is faithful even when we are faithless. I'm going to show you one of my favorite things in the world. It's a rock. It was a gift to me. It was given to me, and, and this is not meant to, to spite me, like on The Office when, when he gave Toby a rock as a gift. No, no, this is, this is a wonderful gift. It says, it's, it says, well, it's got an, a googly eye glued to it. And then there's a heart, and then it says, Dad. My son gave this to me when he was five. I love Dad. And this is one of my most prized things. In fact, someone make sure I don't leave it here, because I'll freak out if I misplace it. But when you think about all that I'd done for Kelvin when he was five years old, and you, you see when, it, when a child of five is thinking about his parents, it's overwhelming, Right? They, they feed me, they clothe me, they put a roof over my head, they keep me warm or cool, they take me to the doctor, they give me toys, they do everything. They endure hours and hours and hours of Bob the Builder and Thomas the Tank Engine. Here's a rock. It's lopsided. But it doesn't matter because it says something to me about his heart and, and it's precious to me. Also, I kind of miss Thomas the Tank Engine. Which devotees know is Thomas the Tank Engine, not Thomas the Train amateurs. But, but yes, we, we don't have anything we can bless him with that he'll say, oh, I've never had one of those. But we can say, I love you, God, and hand him our blessings in return. 
So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. It's a particular kind of blessing that Paul is offering up. Not the general, I'm just overwhelmed, I'm in awe of who God is. That's a good kind as well. We see that in the Psalms frequently. This is the kind of blessing that is blessing back. That is saying, God, you have overwhelmed me. Absolutely with spiritual blessings, and so we praise you, we bless you, because you have blessed us. And he's not thinking of generic blessings, like when people say, I'm blessed, and then they don't elaborate. No, he's got specific stuff in mind. And he begins here by clarifying with three prepositional phrases we're going to look at. Is that exciting? It's hard to get excited about prepositional phrases, I know. You might be thinking, I can't believe I got up, put on my good Sunday mask for this prepositional phrases they're important all right if someone says to you i'll see you that's nice hey i'll see you if they add the prepositional phrase in hell changes the whole sentiment changes the whole thing and depending on who's saying it it might have a large impact on your future we see kind of the opposite happening here blessings are good yes But when he says, these are blessings, and he starts piling on the prepositional phrases, including in heaven, these are even more amazing than they appear in general, in generic terms. And so we're going to look quickly at these. First of all, he blesses us in Christ. And we're not going to take this phrase in Christ or in him or in Jesus Christ and take it apart every time because it happens more than 150 times in this book of Ephesians. We looked at it last week that it's written to those who are saints in Christ. And we see it was the most important modifier in our lives. But here it tells us that the blessings that are in mind for Paul, the blessings God has given, are not common grace blessings. There are blessings of God that apply equally to everyone, whether they follow him or whether they hate him. But these are not those blessings. He's thinking of particular blessings that are only for those who are united to Christ through faith in his death and resurrection. That are united to Christ. There are things that can only be received from and through Jesus himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you leave out the in Christ, you will never have any blessings at all. This is a very important little two-word prepositional phrase. He's given us blessings in Christ. He has blessed us, secondly, with every spiritual blessing. With every spiritual blessing. There are a lot of people who dabble in Jesus and play at church, but they don't really follow him because what they're after is more and more material blessings. And they think that if they get in good with God, they might get them. This isn't new. Jesus even called people out during his ministry with, I know, I made a whole bunch of bread out of a little bread and you got a free meal and you want more of that and that's why you're following me, but I have bread from heaven for you. And yes, God does give us material blessings, it's true. In another of his prison epistles, he tells the Philippians, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory, but that's not what he has in view here. Those who truly follow Jesus yearn for and seek after spiritual blessings. Every blessing that comes through the work of Christ at the cross, every blessing that comes through his continued ongoing ministry of of interceding on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. And that's where he takes us next in the third prepositional phrase. So he blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly Places, or more woodenly translated, in the heavenlies. This is a phrase that's used a good number of times in the book of Ephesians and like nowhere else ever in the whole Bible. 
in the heavenly places. Paul's going to talk about Jesus having been raised up and seated at the right hand in heavenly places. Then he's going to talk about us in the past having been raised up with him into heavenly places. Telling us that this sort of spiritual blessing is not just something for way down the road, in the pie in the sky, by and by, after we die, but these are blessings that we have here and now. And there is some mystery to this. And that's good, we should embrace it. That Christ is ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that we are united with Him, and that we are, in some sense, even now reigning with Christ. How, though, how can we, you and I, have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms? There are different approaches that have been taken. Satan tried to take these things by force, wouldn't recommend it, did not turn out well. The Pharisees then tried to earn every spiritual blessing, earn their way into the heavenly places by their good works. Also didn't work. Not only did they find, ultimately, as Paul, being a Pharisee, tells us, that they didn't have anywhere near enough to cover the cost, but that they didn't even have the right currency. Right? They, they didn't have God's righteousness. They had human righteousness, which is wicked, filthy rags in God's sight. It'd be like if you tried to buy Google for $112. Oh, and it's in Chuck E. Cheese tokens, which, by the way, Chuck E. Cheese doesn't even honor anymore. That's not going to get you very far. How then do we attain these things? He tells us in verse 4, even as he chose us in him. Now Paul begins to dig into the first specific way in which God has blessed us. And yes, this is about election. And no, not everyone likes to hear about it. And sometimes people say, why do you preach on that frequently? And I say, I only preach on it when it comes up in the Bible. Ask the authors of scripture, including the Holy Spirit, why it comes up so frequently. This is an ever-present theme throughout God's Word. I mean, all the way back to the book of Genesis when God is choosing Abraham, not based on who he is or what he has done. He chooses Israel. We read in Deuteronomy 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. This is election. This is God's choice of his people and heaping love from above and bringing blessings to bear on us. Continues into the New Testament as we saw in Acts. Remember in Acts 13, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Jesus himself affirms all of this. The night before he died on the cross, he's in the upper room. And he thanks God in his prayer for those whom the Father had given him with absolute confidence that because the Father had given them, that they could not be snatched out of his hand. As John Stott puts it, this is divine revelation, not human speculation. It comes up as a major theme in Romans and Galatians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Peter, 2nd Timothy. There's scarcely a book of the New Testament that does not make much of the fact that God has chosen us in one way or the other. And you really would have to train yourself to ignore or explain away large swaths of the Bible in order to avoid it. And we shouldn't feel the need to do this. It should not bother us that there is mystery here as well. That we can say, I don't quite get how I could freely choose Christ, 
who has chosen me before the foundation of the earth. Any more than it should be a deal breaker that I don't fully understand how God is three and one. We're talking about the infinite God. If I said, oh yeah, I get it, easy. That'd be, a, that'd be an alarm bell. Maybe we're not talking about an infinite God here. But for some reason, this is a, a commonly avoided topic. In fact, in the back of both of our hymnals, I looked and said, oh, what's, where's the section on, on God's predestining and adopting and electing his chosen people, and there wasn't one. We had to find a, another hymn and print it out in the bulletin. Isaac Watts hymn that should have been in one of those hymnals. But this is commonly treated by God's people as if it were a secondary or tertiary doctrine that doesn't really matter. Some people believe in it. Some people sort of do. Some people don't at all. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. And it isn't a salvation issue where if you don't understand this the same way the early Baptists did, that you somehow are not saved. But it doesn't seem like in Paul's mind this is some third-tier, not-that-important doctrine, in that he brings it up frequently, and here he brings it up first. Not to divide with unnecessary theology, not to make some people feel smug because they're in and they understand things, but rather to give us more reason to bless the God who blesses us. People find this teaching to be difficult at best and perverse at worst. I've heard people say, didn't I choose God? Well, yes, because he first chose you. A lot of people don't like the way that removes me from the driver's seat. It's strange that I can say, I love God because he first loved me, and no one bats an eye. But you say, I chose God because he first chose me, which is essentially the same teaching, and everyone loses their minds. It's almost like autonomous free will is in our culture an idol that we tend to value higher than God's teaching in God's word. And I think it comes back to the question, how far did we fall in the fall? How far did we fall? In Genesis 3, when mankind fell, how, how did we fall? Did we fall upward, like secular humanists want to tell you, that we've been just getting more and more righteous and evolved over the ages, and it's inevitably we're going to reach higher and higher planes? Not the picture we get in Scripture. We did not fall sideways, where we can easily kind of right ourselves. I don't know if this ever happens to you, but I will sometimes migrate far enough in my swivelly, rolly desk chair that I reach for something on my desk and I start to go, and I'm going to grab the desk and pull myself back, and I go, whew, that was close. That's as dangerous as my life generally gets. That's not a good picture of what happened to us in the fall. We did not fall upward, sideways, partway down. We fell all the way down so that at the beginning of chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul will be able to say that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead, not sick, not in a coma. Dead. And I think the reason that the value on the doctrine of election goes down sometimes is because the teaching about how far we fell is, is mitigated. When the Burmese church was here, I used to preach fairly regularly for them for a while. And I remember one day I was here preaching a sermon on Philippians 3.8 when Paul says all of his greatest works that he thought would get him into heaven, he looks at them now and they're a pile of scubula, uh, which is filth, dung, right? And I'm preaching on this and as I'm preaching, there's an interpreter. And it was the best interpreter I've ever worked with. And you know, uh, we've got a lot of internationals around here. I've, I've preached with a lot of different interpreters. She was a, a doctoral student at MSU. She was just boom, 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 boom. And I kind of forgot myself. And I stopped trying to do small chunks and use easier words and make it easy for her. And at one point, I got to this illustration 
that I've, I've used it with you as well, you may remember it, that, that in India there was a time when they started importing manure. And there were people there who were incensed because in a country that big where cows are sacred, they don't give you meat, but they give you lots of manure, and they had their own manure. And so somebody took a whole bunch of carts, I think it was something like 30 carts full of fresh manure to the steps of parliament, and people had protest signs, and one of them said, our manure is better than their manure. The point of it, of course, is that when we start comparing our good works with each other, we're just comparing manure. Well, I get to this point, I'm, I'm preaching through this, and I'm, I'm giving this illustration, and finally, she puts her hand over the mic and says to me, wait, are you talking about, like, cow? I said, yeah, cow poop. She said, well, why didn't you say so? I've been translating that as something better. And that became the best illustration of the whole thing. How often do we translate our filthy rags as if there's something better because we want some of the glory in all of this. We fell all the way down. Even as he chose us in him, there's that in Christ again, in him. And I think that this begins to address some of the problems people have here which are rooted in some caricatures of what people look like who value the doctrine of election and who emphasize that God chose us. The first of these caricatures is that these people are spiritual elitists, and that is sometimes true. Uh, we feel like we are the best, God chose us, we understand about God's choosing, we have a very uh, wide understanding and high status, and that's who we are, and that is inexcusable. It's a lot like the Pharisees, only at least the Pharisees said we'll work to have the bragging rights, this is a kind of spiritual elitism based in just a claim that I've been chosen. Well, we see the same thing even in the Pharisees and the scribes. When John the Baptist says, don't think because you are descendants of Abraham, you will escape judgment. God could bring up descendants of Abraham out of these rocks right here. In fact, when we look at Abraham's story, he was an idolater living in an idolatrous city, and God just said, you, Abram, you come here. It was nothing he did other than God choosing him and putting his love upon Abraham. And so, yes, there are those who fit that caricature, who are smug about this doctrine, but that doesn't make the doctrine untrue. Rather, it just confirms for us how far we have fallen. Here we're told that it is true, that he did choose us in him before the foundation of the world. Election is first in Paul's list of blessings because it happened before all the other blessings, and it's the source of all the other blessings. When exactly? Before creation, before there was time, before anything, God chose us. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should be holy and blameless before him. And I think that addresses and refutes the second caricature, that if you're going, to, you're going to think about God in terms of this, this sovereign God who chooses people according to his will, that we're going to wind up minimizing our sin and just rest on that and say, hey, God chose me. I guess I can do whatever I want. Are there people who have done that? Absolutely. I've also known a lot of people who emphasize human free will to the extreme who do the same thing who say, I made a decision at Vacation Bible School in 1981, and I repeated the prayer, and I got the fire insurance, so now I can live a life of whatever I want, self-centeredness. False converts of every stripe will always exist, and people who are intent on justifying their own sin 
will always be able to convince themselves that their conduct doesn't matter. But truly born-again people will not see these things as an excuse to go on sinning. Quite the opposite. We're told that we are chosen Christ, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Our response is holiness and seeking His face. And then if you have anything but the King James, you probably see something a little weird here, that in verse 4, you have the first two words of a sentence, and then the verse ends, in love, and then verse 5 starts. In love, because in, in the original versification here that happened relatively recently in church history, uh, it, it said that he chose us all before the foundation of the world, holy and blameless before him in love. It went with the verse before. Now we've determined probably it goes with the sentence after in verse 5. But I love the way it leaves that in love just kind of hanging there in the middle because it is the hinge, the hinge pin of all of this. That God's love is what motivates his choosing us and God's love is what motivates his adopting us, which is where he goes next. Tim Keller said, here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. More sinful than you ever dared believe, more love than you ever dared to hope. He predestined us, we read, for adoption through Jesus Christ. And adoption is a wonderful picture of this. Adoption being, meaning that by the will of the one doing the adopting, someone usually before they've been able to do much of anything in their life, but not always, is then taken into the family, made part of the family, and a full member and full heir. And under Roman law, adopted children had the same rights and privileges as natural-born sons and daughters, even those who had been a slave in that household before they were adopted. Think about when Jesus was baptized, and there was a voice from heaven, and the, the, the dove came down, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and the voice said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus went on to do the work on the cross so that having paid our debt, God can say of us, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. To make us his co-heirs, his brothers and sisters, that is mind-blowing, having been adopted into the family. And thank God our salvation rests in his nail-scarred hands, not in our fickle, wicked butterfingers, because we would drop it every time. We would not hold our salvation firmly. And that's not how adoption works anyway. You don't have to hang on to it. It's, it's there. I, don't, I know a lot of adopted people. I don't know any of them who have to like re-up with the family every year. No, it's, it's a done deal. It's a proclamation. And the same thing happens here. That, that we are comforted by this truth. That we can pray, as Jesus told us, our Father in heaven, and then in that same prayer acknowledge, yeah, I dropped the ball and I need forgiveness. We're not kind of hanging there until we mess up and then we have to leave. No, no, no. We are secure because of these things. I, I feel so sorry for those whose faith tradition keeps them in the dark all the time. People who say, oh, what if I die and I've committed a mortal sin? And what if I die and I haven't yet been, been able to do the ritual that makes me ready to face God? We know that we belong to him because we've been adopted by him and that our sins are covered by his blood that we are spoken for in Jesus Christ. Your relationship with God, if you've put your faith in him and turned from your sins, if you're born again, your relationship with God is not some precarious Ross and Rachel, Sam and Diane, on again, off again, will they, won't they thing, 
where, where it's always up in the air where the status is. If you were writing about it on Facebook, you'd write, it's complicated, my relationship with God. No, it's not complicated. He died on the cross and rose again, and he washed away my sins. And now I belong to him. I am his true son. This happened by the decree of God. Before there was anything at all, he made this decree. How comforting is that in a time when the, the smartest minds in the world telling us about the most important thing right now in the world say one thing one day, something else a week later, and something else a week after that, that this stuff isn't subject to change. That you are safe in the hands of your Savior according to the purpose of his will. Predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It's clear that holiness is the result of God's choosing and adopting us, not the basis for it. There's one way that people have tried to kind of slip around this doctrine by saying, well, what happens is God looks down the corridors of time, sees who would choose him, and then chooses them first. So still they kind of get the glory and the credit for it. That's not what Scripture tells us. First of all, this is before the foundation of the world. There were no corridors of time to look down. But more importantly, it's clear from this text that it's not our will, free or otherwise, that is the deciding factor. It's God's will. And thank God, because the will of man is rebellious and wicked and deceitful, and we never would choose him. The will of God, the will of God is perfect and holy and gracious and merciful. Our greatest deeds are filthy rags in his sight that doesn't sit well with many of us. But according to Paul, it is reason number one that we should bless the God who blesses us. And of course I'm not saying that people who hold the different views on this doctrine are not saved. I can't stand it when I bump into that. It's kind of Gnosticism that if we don't line up on all these things that you're outside and I'm inside. But I do think that they're missing out on something wonderful. Namely, this this elation that Paul is obviously in the midst of as he blesses God for all that he's done beginning before the foundation of the world. And the wonderful blessed assurance that we have when we know that our salvation does not rest in our own hands, but in his. For people complain that this idea is arbitrary. I can't believe in a God that would be so arbitrary. And he would choose some. What blasphemy that is. And how arrogant to think that if I don't understand the reasons that the infinite God has for doing something, he must not have any reasons because I can fully understand and grasp the mind of God. We need to repent of that kind of thing, that arrogance. And recognizing the truths contained in this passage will lead us away and toward humility, away from that caricature of the smug Calvinist guy with his big beard, his micro Bruce. In accordance with the will and purpose of God. That's the reason. And then finally in verse 6, he has chosen us, he has predestined us, he has adopted us to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. That's the end goal. To the praise of his glorious grace. And it's interesting to me that Paul, who is continually anticipating the objections of his readers, when you read Paul's letters, he's like, well, what then? Should we say this? Oh, wait, am I saying this? He's always doing that. Here, he doesn't. He doesn't seem to think that this teaching is going to be overly controversial. 
among his readers. Rather, he assumes it will lead them to praise and blessing just as it has led him. You see, this is not a, an invitation to debate. It's an invitation to awe and worship. And that is the core of all of this. Awe and worship. So let us embrace this mysterious teaching for what the Bible says it is. A mystery and a blessing. One of many blessings lavished on us by our God. And rather than Monday morning quarterbacking God's plan of salvation, let us return praise and bless Him back. Did I use that right, Monday morning quarterback? Not a, not a sports guy. I know I did. I'm being silly. But I'm not a sports guy, and, and I haven't missed any televised sports during all of this. I'm sorry. I haven't, I've only missed going to Lugnuts games. That's it. I'm not a real deep fan of anything, but I get it, and I'm kind of jealous when people are. You know, when people have an identity with something, and it gets them excited. But I think the people who are most upset right now about missing sports are people who say we when they're talking about a professional team that they don't belong to. Have you noticed this? These people, and, I, and I get that too, and it's cool. You, know, you identify so closely with it that you say, we won last night. Did you see the Lions game? We won. Or did you see the Lions game? They lost. But, but you know, tying so closely to a team name can get absurd. When I see people doing the real trash talking to the real depths, I get embarrassed for them. When they're like, ah, ha, ha, we beat you last night. We got that interception at the last minute, and we ran down, and we scored that amazing. And I'm like, I saw the whole game. You were not on the field. You were not even there. You were at home in a recliner with Cheeto dust all over your chest. You get none of the glory for this. And the same thing is true of our relationship with God and what he has done for us. We identify with him, yes. We can and should brag on him, but if the doctrine of election tells anything to people like us, it's that it reminds us that the game was won when we were not only not playing, but we were in the stands cheering for the other team, shouting curses and discouragement to our Lord. And still, he died on a cross and rose again for us. And that's why the emphasis here is on God's will, God's grace, God's love, God's purpose, God's choice before the foundation of the world. I've known some, some really hardcore sports fans. I've never known any who would go that far back in their bragging or even back before their time. I've never known a Yankees fan who says, you like the Pirates? Ha <laughs> ha, we destroyed you in the 1927 World Series. You weren't even a glimmer in your daddy's eye, nor he in his daddy's eye. In the same way, we are connected and identified with Christ, and we share in the victory, but the glory is all his. And we want nothing more because of that, to shout that glory and that good news to the world. And that brings me to the third and final caricature of those who embrace this idea of God having chosen his own, as Scripture teaches that the attitude would be, forget evangelism. If God does this thing on his own, and he already did it before the foundation of the world, why should I bother to tell anyone about Jesus? Why should I bring the gospel up? God will do his thing, that's fine. There have been those who have taught that, sadly. But there have been others who were told that and, and rejected it. People like William Carey, Katerina Zell, Adoniram Judson, to name a few who said, even though, yes, God does the choosing, we're the instrument by which he carries it out, and we're the only one 
And they understood that because of these truths, in sharing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, they were guaranteed success to be used by God, that as they proclaimed the gospel, God would use it to draw his own to himself. And it should motivate us along the same lines when we read a passage like this one. And finally, it brings us to this last little section, this last little prepositional phrase, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. This is all about how God has blessed us through Jesus Christ. When we think about these things, our response should be, God, you've blessed me so much, and I bless you back. I bless you back with my words. I bless you back in my prayers. I bless you back in song. And I bless you back with my life. In this little section here of this massive sentence, we've seen that the source of our election and our adoption is God's will and that the and and God's love, and that the end goal of these things is God's glory. And the result in our lives should be that we would be humble, that we would live holy, and that we would heap praise upon our Heavenly Father. This is not just some dusty doctrine that doesn't matter. We've seen it come to life here. And I've seen it come to life throughout church history and in the lives of many saints that I have looked up through over the years. And that is why I went from kind of trying to skirt my way around this to some way, sometime early in seminary recognizing if I'm going to take the Bible seriously, I have to take it at its word. And I think that oftentimes, even as the world looks from the outside and says, this whole thing just, it smells like a setup to me. C.S. Lewis had the same idea. He, he was kind of grossed out when he was an atheist by the idea of God. He would read the Psalms and scoff. He called God's demands for praise the soundings of an old woman seeking compliments for herself. Yikes. I'm sure he repented of that later as he repented of all his sins because as God changed his heart, he began to recognize that he was viewing God wrong, but he was also viewing praise wrong. That he, he, was, he was making a new category for returning praise and blessing God when that wasn't warranted. In fact, this is what he wrote. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything strangely, had escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their beloved. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. My whole, more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my denying what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation of joy. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And that's what we see happening here with St. Paul. He has to express the delight and joy that he feels in the Lord. And if nothing in this world matters except matter, if if it's just this is all there is, then life is pointless and purposeless. But if indeed there are blessings, spiritual blessings in heavenly places for us, and these things rely not on us being perfect, but on God having before the foundation of the world and his sovereign love laid his love upon us, Well, then everything matters. Everything in your life matters. We're part of something infinitely bigger, something begun by the God of the cosmos before the foundation of the world.
Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are often a bit perplexed as we read these things because we cannot fit them neatly into categories and and understandable syllogisms in our minds, and, and we don't like that. We don't want to not be in control. We don't want to not have a full picture of all that is. Lord, we pray that you would cure us of that that we would, we would delight to know a bit more about you every time we encounter you, every time we read your word. We know we will never, even in eternity, exhaust all there is to know about you, all there is to love about you, all there is to give thanks that you've done for us. Lord, may we be content just to know that you love us, that you chose us before the foundation of the world. And Lord, if there's someone here who says, I don't know if I've put my faith in him, or if there's someone watching on the computer or listening on the phone who says, how do I, I don't know if I'm, the fact that they feel you drawing them to yourself, Lord, I pray would be enough that they would understand, yes, they are spoken for in Christ. And by turning from their sins, believing on you and repenting, that Lord, that they would be saved. Saved unto a holy and blameless in your presence existence. Saved unto all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Saved to be adopted as a son or daughter of the mighty King. And and Lord, we are so thankful that this is our destiny. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.